0: Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation. All 66 books. The Big Book. Cover to Cover. This is Michael Easley in Context.
1: We are in the book of Zephaniah. It's hard to believe we're this far into the cover to cover series. And it's amazing how time has gone. It's also amazing the feedback we've received. It's been very encouraging to go through one book of the Bible each Sunday. And so this is a rather short book but it's a good reminder to get perspective on where we've come from and where we're going. And these minor prophets are winding down quickly We only have three more remaining in the Old Testament and then we'll jump into the Gospels in our New Testament, so it's an exciting time to be studying the scriptures together. Well, the book of Zephaniah is interesting at a lot of levels. We talk about what these names mean and sometimes we can overwork them just a little bit, but it probably means something like Jehovah has concealed or Jehovah has hidden or maybe Jehovah has covered in the sense of protection. You might remember the story of, uh, we talk about fields of meaning, how words are used is how we understand what they mean. So we have to look at what this idea of hidden means. You remember uh, Moses, when he was born, uh, Pharaoh wanted to kill all the Hebrew boys that were two years and under, and he put out this edict to do this, and uh, so his, his mother hid him in uh, coverage for three months before she puts him in this little basket and sends him down the Nile River. Uh, So he's hidden, but why? To protect him. So if we think about the way that word's used in the name Zephaniah, what's God saying about this person? Uh, The the wicked also can hide. They can hide from what they're doing so they're not exposed and they hide themselves from good people who would try to stop them. It's also used of God's protection that he hides people to protect them from wicked. He hides them to protect them from harm. Lots of ways this word is used. Again, don't want to overwork it, but it is an unusual name. I don't know anyone named Zephaniah. Maybe you do, but it it begs sort of curiosity when we come across a name like this in the Old Testament. Now, the Bible tells us he is related. He's a son of Uh, The word is hard to pronounce. It's like Q, like the the, uh, London, uh, England will talk about getting a Q, getting a line. It's Cushai, or Cushai is the name. And we don't know a lot about him. But what we do know is that Zephaniah is the great, great grandson of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a good king. was a great king. And so this is the only prophet we have in the Old Testament, as far as I know, that is directly related to a monarch. He's a great, great grandson of a king. Most prophets were called from different walks of life. This one is related to a king. So that makes us lean into the story a little bit going, he's unique in that regard. Well, like many prophets, you know, we have this continuum. We know almost nothing or we know quite a lot about a prophet. And Zephaniah falls into the we don't know much about him category, but the text gives us some pretty interesting information just in these first few verses. And let me go ahead and read those. We don't have these on the screen, but I wanna read them just so you can hear. The word of the Lord, which came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, the king of Judah. So even in one verse, we get an interesting genealogy of who this guy is without a lot of deep insight. So in my study of these minor prophets, I step back this week and I go, why are we interested in knowing their backstory? Why does it matter? This isn't like something I can be bulldogmatic about, but what struck me was maybe God uh, wants us to be less focused on the man and more focused on the message. Maybe it's not always about who the character and the backstory of Zephaniah or Haggai or Malachi or Amos or Hosea or whoever. Maybe the story is more about the message than the man. And that led me down one of many rabbit trails in my own personal study. And my mind ran to Paul in the book of 1 Corinthians where there's a division that's happening in the church in Corinth. And he's he's correcting them. And he's saying, you know, some of you are saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Christ. And then he says, has Christ been divided? And he kind of wire brushes them to say, you're, you're going after men and you're missing the message of the man, Jesus Christ. We all have our, our Bible teacher heroes. Maybe you have certain pastors you like. Maybe uh, as a woman, you have certain women teachers you really love and you quote that person a lot. You only use his or her Bible studies. And I'm not trying to run in your parade. I'm just trying to uh, challenge your thinking In mind, Are we more interested in the person or the message? And it's a good reminder to me personally, and I study the scripture. I have my favorite commentators, my favorite Bible teachers that I go to for information. But perhaps one of the early lessons in this is to be less focused on the person and more focused on the message that God is giving us through this individual. Well, as with all books, we try to give you a little bit of an outline, and there's no shortage of outlines on any book of the Bible. You can spend hours looking at outlines if that's your thing. I came across one from David Dockery that I really like. He's written a book, by the way, called The Holman Handbook of the Bible. You can pick it up, The Holman Handbook of the Bible. David Dockery, good writer. He gives us three easy points, and I like easy. Uh, Number one, the exhortation to submit. Submit. Secondly, the exhortation to repent. And thirdly, the exhortation to wait. Submit, repent, and wait. And those themes are going to come through loud and clear as you read the book. And we're going to land on that at the end of the message. But I thought Dockery did a really helpful job with those three exhortations. Exhortation to submit, to repent, and to wait. And I would suggest we're not very good at any of these. So it's an interesting message that we can cross timelines and look how it applies. Let's get the context. You know, that's my big thing. Let's get the political setting of what's going on during the time of Zephaniah. We have 55 years of a reign of a king named Manasseh. He's the longest reigning king in Judah, and he's the most wicked reigning king of all the kings of Israel. And so there's a lot of hard, uh, unfortunate, tragic storylines about Manasseh. So when you follow a king like that, how do you do a course correction? His son Amnon was no better than him and unfortunately, fortunately, he had a very short reign compared to his father. But Judah is deeply into sin. They're deeply into immorality, deeply into idolatry. And what they've essentially done, the Assyrians, of course, are the big enemy, the superpower, and and Israel has embraced their pagan gods, their idolatrous immorality, they brought them in, syncretism, they brought them into Israel. And Manasseh was was endorsing all this. So when we read Josiah and his role in what Zephaniah is writing about, Josiah is this good king that comes along. That's what he's inherited is a mess. Which by the way, nothing new. Kingdoms come and go, monarchs come and go, dictators come and go. Administrations in our own country of the U.S. come and go, and we're often blaming the prior administration for what they're doing or the current administration. Nothing has changed. People have mixed motives when they get into power and authority. Nothing is new. The ancients had the same problem. Now, among the Assyrians, let's call them the list of gods. You know the name Baal, you might know the name. Asherah or the Asherim. Uh, there are all sorts of Canaanite gods. Molech was the one that child sacrifice was given to Molech and there's a host of them. Manasseh has not only said it's okay to do these things, he's brought some of these things into the temple complex. So he's he's defiled the complex that God had intended so that the Israelites, who were only supposed to worship Yahweh Elohim, only supposed to worship Adonai, They're worshiping the gods of Baal, the gods of the Asherah, the Asherim, the gods of Molech. And Manasseh is not only endorsing it, he's doing it himself. And this is what Zephaniah is writing against the background of this. Now, when, when these systems, it's hard to believe this would happen. But if you think of just what's happened in our country, things that three decades ago were unthought of, and clearly we thought as right and wrong, today are celebrated. And it's not just that we have to approve of them and tolerate them. You have to embrace them and endorse them. It's no different than what happened to Israel and Judah during the time of uh, Hezekiah's, what what he left, what Manasseh did to it, and what Josiah is going to inherit. Now, beyond this sun-moon worship system, uh, there was a child sacrifice that was practiced. And I'll just give you two references for those of you that want to track these down. In Second Kings chapter 11, verses 19 to 26, six. Second Kings 11, verses 19 to 26, and the corollary passage, Second Chronicles 33, 21 25, we have child sacrifice mentioned. Some of your Bibles might say that he made him walk through fire, And as best we understand that phrase and idiom, it wasn't like uh, you see these crazy people run across uh, burning coals. This was child sacrifice, that they put their child in a position to walk through fire to the God of Molech. So child sacrifice did occur. Um, There's evidence archeologically of this uh, occurring. And so this is not disputed. This is part of the political setting. Israel, to worship Jehovah, to worship the one true God, there's only one God, monotheism, has brought all these pagan, idolatrous, immoral gods into their temple complex, and the people are celebrating it. This is when Josiah comes along the scene, and this is what Zephaniah is writing about. Uh, Josiah is eight years old when he becomes king. Think about it, like a boy king. But we also get some neat insight on this young man. We read that he's gonna reign for 31 years. And we read in chapter 34 of Second Chronicles, verse three, listen to this, eight years old, he began to seek the God of his father, David. And in the 12th year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherim, the carved images, and the molten images. An eight year old boy, an eight year old boy. It tells us he had pretty good parentage. It tells us he had some people around him that had him on the straight and narrow way of Israel having one true God. And so this boy king decides we need to clean this up. Now, not to digress too far, but the Canaanite system with Baal in particular and the Asherah, these two gods were essentially consorts to one another. And you can see pictures of them if you look on Google images or biblical archaeological sites. You can see carved images of what the Ashtaroth and Asherim were and what Baal was. And these, these gods uh, had an allure to them. And it was a very prevalent allure. Um, so this is the backdrop. A boy King says, we got to get rid of these high places. And not only that, we got to get these, let's just call them, artifacts out of the temple complex and clean up the temple. So when you repair the temple of God, sometimes that meant cleaning out the idolatry that was going on at the time. We read that in his 18th year of his reign, so he's probably 26 years old, uh, he decides to do repair work on the temple complex. And it's, a, it's one of these stories you read and you can't believe it. So they're cleaning up the temple, they're repairing it, and they make a discovery. And in chapter 34 of 2 Chronicles, it says, quote, they found the book of the law. Josiah's the king, under his orders, they're cleaning up the temple complex, getting rid of the idolatry, and they find, let's just call it the Bible, they find the scriptures. And the priests, their minds are blown. Do you found this book? What is this book about? And Josiah's response reveals his heart, in his mind, a 26-year-old king, he tore his clothes, he humbled himself before God. Here's Whenever a king does this, understand, he's the highest authority on the land and he humbles himself to the dirt. He's saying, I'm not king, God is king. So he tears his clothes, he humbles himself before God, And he goes into the most extensive reforms Israel has ever experienced. 55 years of idolatrous, immoral, pagan worship. And Josiah says, enough. We've got to stop this. And this 26-year-old leader says, we're going to do this right. And he humbles himself. And then he begins the most extensive reform ever. Now, I've got a Bible here that I've had since 2008. And I take notes in my Bible, as my friend Dave Gibson says, Michael, you haven't read it, but you've colored most of it. Uh, But in any event, I take notes in my Bible and I write in it furiously. And I've got lots of Bibles at home. I bet you do too. And I think of if we didn't have a Bible within hand arm's reach and we were cleaning out the attic and we found a Bible, uh, these people, of course, didn't have scriptures the way we, we've got them in our pocket. We've got them on smartphones and tablets, and we've got every commentary and every version and translation. And goodness, so many English translations, it's almost ridiculous. But they found the Bible. Let's just put it in that term. They found the Bible. There was no Gutenberg Press. You did, the Jews didn't have a copy of the Torah at home. It's much later in history where the Torah scrolls were available for people to have. Josiah's priest cleaning up the temple complex find the scriptures. And it it starts a whole new wave of reform. The Asherah poles uh, and, and these idols they worship were often in high places. And I think of them as sort of a perennial weed. I don't know if you take care of your grass in your yard and maybe you do it yourself or you have a company come and spray. I think they just spray water and send you a bill. But anyway, uh, they, they treat the weeds, right? And the weeds always come back. And I, you know, you have, hard to get rid of weeds, hard to get rid of weeds. And for Israel, it was really hard to get rid of these idols. It was really hard to get rid of the Asherim in particular. And so when the high places are knocked over, they would destroy the idol and the altar arrangement, which meant toppling over stones. And again, when you go to Israel, we'll take you to a place called Megiddo. And you will see when they excavated a tell, a ring of Canaanite arranged stones where they offered sacrifices. They found all kinds of animal bones there. There's some dispute about human remains there or not, but it was a high place. If you go to Jordan and go to Petra, you can take what we call the young people hike, where the young, uh, in shape teenagers and 20 somethings go to the top of this very arduous hike, and you'll see a canine high place. And the high place also had archaeological evidence of child sacrifice, of animal sacrifice. That one even has areas where it seems they had dug troughs in the stone for the blood when they offered the sacrifices. These high places were a weed that they couldn't get rid of. That's the point. So Josiah's reforms are to stop these things. The text says the Assurim were on every high hill beneath every luxuriant tree. And it explained the widespread acceptance of this. And I'm thinking, you know, we don't worship idols. We don't have that type of idolatry in America today. You know, the easiest and safest comparison is pornography. It is everywhere. It is on every device, it's instantaneous, it's on every, under, every luxuriant tree, on every high place. From the highest to the lowest, it's available and it's pervasive. And Josiah in antiquity says, you're not gonna worship these gods. I'm gonna do all I can to dismantle the structures where you go to do these immoral things to these false gods. Because that's what Yahweh, that's what God, Jehovah wanted him to do to stop these things well under his reforms when they discovered the book of the law they begin this cascade of trying to clean things up and it seems as this was the closest the divided monarchy ever had to becoming united again under Josiah's reforms but we also dig deeper and we know sometimes that outward change doesn't mean inward change We can dress up, we can look better, we can look nicer, but we can still be evil people. And it seems as though even under Josiah's reforms, a lot of people, they might have had some outward change, but their hearts weren't changing. And that, of course, was the problem. It's easy for us to play around in sin and pretend that we're okay as Christians. It's a dangerous place to live, but that's what Israel was doing at the time. To put it in theological terms, we prefer sin over sanctification, we enjoy the pleasure of sin, even though it's momentarily over the process of sanctification, which is ongoing. And this really, if you're a believer in Christ, uh, all of us, I think we'd be honest to say, there are times when we're growing, there are times when we're kind of flat in our affect, and there are times when we're in sin and away from God. And that cycle, like the judges cycle, we go through these cycles. Maybe we're growing, maybe we kind of get apathetic, maybe we dive into sin deeply and don't care Uh, We justify our sins. Israel, don't be super hard on Israel. We're just the same. And what I want to encourage you and encourage myself as well, sin is not what it holds out to be. Sanctification is a process, and only by sanctification do we grow in maturity to understand, to let sin lose its tentacles so that when they spray, they really are killing those weeds. They're not just glossing over the problem. There's an outward change, but there's an inward change. And I would suggest the inward change manifests itself outwardly because once you and I are locked into our sanctification, I want want to be more like the man Jesus wants me to be. I want you to be, as a woman, to be more the woman Christ wants you to be than the world or the temptations of the world, the idols and immorality, what pulls you away from Christ. Those are the reforms Josiah was trying to bring upon his people. Nothing's changed. It still is important. The big thing that's changed is you and I, as believers, have a copy of the Word of God, and we also have God's Spirit who indwells us permanently. God's Word God's spirit, God's people can help us in that that sanctification process. And goodness, if there's been a time for you to hole up under this COVID-19 quarantine thing and all the the space we got to observe and wear a mask when you go to the store, all this craziness we're living in, um, can you hunker down a little more time with the Lord? Can you uh, grow in sanctification, not become apathetic and not certainly go down into a sin pattern? Uh, I know you can because I know Christ is able to help you. He's able to help me in these things. We're not alone in this. Well, as today, let's change and say, I want to be sanctified, not live in sin. And that would be the message that Josiah is going to preach and the message Zephaniah is going to try to express to his listeners. Well, the book itself has one big major theme, and that's the term the Day of the Lord. Depending on what English Bible you might use, it occurs 20 or 23 times its reference, the Day of the Lord. 53 verses and 20 to 23 references to the day of the Lord. That's not, that's not a hard one to miss. This is a big part of Zephaniah's story, the day of the Lord. What is this day of the Lord referring to? That's a really good question that I had to dig into this past week, and I hope you will as well. Let's look at some of these. Obviously, it's a coming judgment. The day of the Lord is some future time. It's gonna happen. Zephaniah is talking about, the day is coming. We we think about when your kids are little, we talk about when's your next birthday? You're know, you're five and a half, you're not five, you're five and a half, you're waiting for that day. When's Christmas day? We have these days in mind. Uh, How do we focus on the day of God's judgment, the day of the Lord coming, this coming judgment? The tension with this in the book of Zephaniah is there is a remnant, which means a real small piece that's not going to be uh, judged in the same way in the day of the Lord as everyone else. But that's a foreboding message. Now, there's six different ways this concept is used, and I want to show you these so you can look at them, and I'll talk through them a little bit. But there's six different judgment themes in the book of Zephaniah. The first one is a judgment that will come on all creation and mankind. The New Testament talks about the world groans, the creation groans, longing for the second coming of Christ. This is not a new theme. Judgment's going to come on creation. In antiquity, famine. And the lack of rain, uh, plight that affected livestock and husbandry, those things were what the ancients worried about. And they would often look at them as God's judgment on creation and mankind. Secondly, Zephaniah points out that judgment is sure and imminent. It's going to come. Uh, imminency is a hard thing for believers to appreciate and engage. It's going to happen. It could happen any day but we don't really live that way. But nonetheless, that's the message of judgment. It's sure it could happen anytime. Thirdly, judgment is due to our sin, and it's devastating. And this one is, is uh, uh, we can go real deep into this. When something bad happens to you or me, health, marriage, finances, whatever you want to fill in the blank, when something bad happens, I encourage Christians to stop and say, am I living in sin Am I toying with a sin and could this be the reason God is allowing this to happen to me? That's not a popular discussion, but it's an important discussion. And it's one that whenever anything bad happens to me, whether it's a new health issue, problems with my kids, whatever might happen, my grandkids, something bad happens to a friend, it's the first thing that runs to. maybe it's my guilty conscience, I don't know, but it's the first thing that runs through my mind is, Lord, is this because of some sin? And I call it doing business with your savior. And if you're living in some sin, toying with some sin, playing with some sin, certainly doesn't hurt. Certainly it's important and beneficial to stop, acknowledge that and confess it because judgment's coming. And Zephaniah is telling us that because of your sin, there's gonna be a devastation. And in their case, they can't stop it. Fourth, judgment can come because of surrounding enemies. And throughout history, anytime there's wars or battles or conflicts with people groups, we can look at these enemy nations. Fifth, judgment is a way uh, for making God's uh, remnant safe, which seems like a strange twist. But he's going to judge this group of people in order to save this remnant of people. And finally, judgment is a way to make for restoration. We've got to clean the deck sometime. And God's going to judge when he brought the global flood during Noah's day, he was starting over. And there were times God judged people groups. He judged families. He judged kings. And he's still in that business. Well, those are the judgment themes of this day of the Lord. Let's wrap this up looking at four exhortations. And I think the book is built around these four exhortations. Now, when you hear the word exhort, probably a word we don't use in, in the common course of language, but think of a word with an exclamation point or a command in the military. This is an exhortation. This is a, I got to point out. You need, to, you know, maybe as a parent, you say, "Clean your room." That's not a request. You know, pick up your stuff, help your mother clean the table, you know, whatever it is. Those have exclamation points on them. They're a command. That's an exhortation, generally the same in the Bible. There's four of them I want to look at, and they come straight out of the text. Chapter 1, verse 7, be silent. You could translate that hush if you wanted. Uh, And this is before the Lord, not just in general terms, shut up, but it's be silent before God. Secondly, gather which is an interesting term in our context, gather, exclamation point, command. Third, seek, and this word is found three times in chapter two, verse three, and then wait in chapter three, verse eight. And let me read these passages, and we'll come back to that slide so you can capture them if you want to, but let me read the passages where these exhortations come from. Zephaniah chapter one, verse seven. Be silent or hush, before the lord god for the day of the lord is near for the lord has prepared a sacrifice he has consecrated his guests the prophet is saying uh, there's a time when you come to worship and your job is put your hand over your mouth not a time for your opinion not a time for your thoughts not a time for you to verbally process time to hush you're getting ready to worship god Secondly, in chapter 2, the first three verses of Zephaniah, chapter 2, verse 1 to 3, gather, there's our word, gather yourselves together. Yes, gather, O nation without shame, before the decree takes effect, the day passes like chaff. Chaff, of course, is that lightweight part of the hull of the grain. It's just like dust, basically. It blows away by the wind. The day passes like chaff. Time is gonna go away like nothing before the burning anger of the Lord comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you. See that day of the Lord again? Now here's the word seek. Notice three times in verse three. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth who have carried out his ordinances, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Let's look at those just a second. Gather yourselves together, gather a nation without shame. They're, they're going to be judged. This is not a come up here and I'm going to give you all a ribbon. This is a this is an excoriating exhortation. You're going to be judged. But interestingly, the the tandem message is seek the Lord, seek righteousness, seek humility. Again, do we do this? Do you seek the Lord? Do you seek after righteousness? Do you and I seek to be righteous as much as we seek to get away with sin? Do we seek humility as eagerly as we seek to be known or have our name mentioned or succeed in life in some way? So we've got be silent, hush, we've got gather, we've got seek, and then finally we have the word wait for me. And this is in Zephaniah chapter three, verse eight. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day, again, there's that phrase, the day when I rise up as a witness. Indeed, my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. Just park on that verse for a minute. Uh, You're coming to worship God, to wait for him, but Zephaniah says, God's word, my decision to gather nations to assemble kingdoms and I'm gonna pour out my wrath and indignation on them. This is not a cheery message. This is a, a warning passage of what's going to happen to them, whether they like it or not. So let's go back to those four exhortations so you can see them all together on one image. Be silent, gather, seek, and wait. Be silent. When you and I come to worship God, it's a hard discipline for some of us to hush. Uh, when, when you read the scripture in the morning, which I hope you do or maybe you have your your devotion at night right now if you're at home and you' got a lot of margin, you got no excuse not to spend some time in the word. And when you, you read a passage over and over and over which I hope you do, you just sit and be quiet And I'm not saying you're going to hear some audible noise or God's going to speak to you. just turn your mind and your mouth off. That's hard for some of us. Some of us just run. You just run, hush, be silent. Secondly, gather. Interesting admonition for us right now because we can't really gather. We're looking forward to gathering. Some of you might have gotten together in the uh, appropriate number, what is it, 10 right now, people and social distancing, whatever, wah, wah, wah. Uh, We got together with our family for Easter. We had a little meal at our house and it was so fun to be with them. Uh, No one wanted to leave. We couldn't stop talking. A man was not meant to be alone and when it comes to the body of Christ, gathering is important. Now they're gathering for judgment. Uh, you and I can certainly apply this about the importance of gathering. Uh, we some of us have seen in uh, social media memes, and I think, unfortunately, uh, abusive and critical ways of using Hebrews, not forsaking the assembly together is as a habit of son, some, and they say, you should go to church. I don't think it's really how to apply that, but what the point of that passage is, you can't live the Christian life as a as a lone ranger. You need God's word, God's spirit, and you need God's people around you to encourage you, to help you, to give you that dope slap when you need it once in a while, to walk alongside you. You need other believers to help you in this equation. And then I love this, seek the Lord, seek righteousness, seek humility. Uh, those are probably things I don't know that I've thought about those. Well, I do think about seeking the Lord, but I don't know that I seek righteousness and seek humility. Do you? It's an interesting admonition. Do you seek him? And then do you look at your life and go, how do I align my life? And righteousness doesn't have to be this super religious word, doing the right thing in the right way that pleases God. Doing the right thing in the right way that pleases God. That's a simple way of thinking about it. Do you and I do the right thing in the right way knowing we're serving God? Do you seek after that? And then the third one, boy, don't we all need this? Seek humility. Seek to lessen yourself. We saw Josiah tear his robe when he found these things That When they discovered the law, he tore his robe and he repents. And he's the king. He's humble. Think of any picture, any movie, any book you've read, when the monarch, when the, when the dictator, when the one in power humbles him or herself, what happens to the rest of the people? They do too. To seek him, seek righteousness, and seek humility. And then finally, wait for me. That's, that's what I like wait for me. We are impatient people. I was uh, talking to some friends this past week, again, these social connections from years ago, and they were saying, how's your internet speed? And they were complaining about, my internet speed is slow. And I had a laugh and I said, how impatient have we become? We've forgotten when you used to have a modem that you plugged in the wall and you waited for AOL to say, you've got mail. And then it took, you know, eight minutes for it to load on your computer. And then it timed out and all. I mean, we are so instantaneous. It's ridiculous. How many of you impatiently stand in front of the microwave? How long does it take to warm up, whatever it is? And you're sitting there going, it takes so long. It takes 10 more seconds. And how many people get it out before the timer's done? It's an indictment on our impatience. God's not a microwave. The admonition is to wait. To wait on the Lord. Maybe that's one of the many things the Lord's teaching you and me at this time. You think you're important? Humble yourself. You think your job is your security in life? Trust Him. You think seeking after sin is going to solve your pain, anesthetize your pain and guilt? Sanctification will. So, Think about these again. Be silent, hush before God, gather. We're limited, but we can't do that creatively. Seek him, seek righteousness, seek humility. And finally, wait. What a great application from this Old Testament prophet. Those are four things that you can sink your teeth into today and the weeks to come. And that's my prayer for you. You be silent before God that you gather to worship Him, you gather to hear His Word in ways you can, that you seek Him, you seek righteousness, you seek humility, and in the process, wait. What's it gonna hurt? It can only help. And that's what the Word does for all of us. It always helps us. If we're off in sin, it helps us come back to Him. If we're worried and fearful, it helps us realign that He's our God, He's our sovereign, He's our physician. If we're out of resources, He's the one who has resources. Learn how to wait, and wait patiently on Him.
0: Michael Easley in Context is fully funded by our listeners. If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is edited, mixed, and mastered by Tim Hull, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Chad Gates.